Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where I talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Um, we are in week 13 of our study of the two Thessalonian letters written by Paul. Um, and so that means there's a lot of backstory up to this point. If this is your first time watching or listening, um, I highly encourage you to go back and, and after this week, go back and try to catch up because there's just so much depth there and these two letters are so interrelated. And on top of that, you know, every single week we're studying something that you realistically could have read all of this in one sitting. So what we studied 10 weeks ago, you would have been able to read 10 minutes ago, probably, you know, so it's important to make sure we don't take things out of context. So that's why we always go through and look at the train of thought, make sure we're actually teaching what the Bible says and not what we want it to say. Okay. Um, so that being said, as always, uh, this letter, we're in 2 Thessalonians, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, getting to the end of this letter, we're not going to be in it a whole lot longer, um, it was written by Paul. The second Thessalonian letter was written within a few weeks to maybe a month or so after the first Thessalonian letter just because uh, people got some things wrong, he said, in the first Thessalonian letter. And that we looked at that last week and in the previous week. It was really heavy on that. This week, it's, it's kind of going to be a back to basics a little bit. Um, we're going to be looking at what happens when we become a Christian and how do we stay a Christian, right? Um, and so we're going to be looking at that. But as always, let's read the entire section and then we'll, uh, we'll break it down. Just a few verses this week. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 2, it says this, But we always owe God a debt of gratitude for you, my family beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits of his work of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. So then, my dear family, stand firm and hold on tight to the traditions which you were taught, whether through what we said or through our letter." And may our Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. So we're going to break this up, verses uh, 13 and 14, and then 15, 16, 17. All right, verses 13 through 14, uh, it, Paul starts out by saying he's grateful for them. He says this over and over throughout these letters, and pretty much all his letters, that his view of the churches he helped start is really an honor. Like, he's grateful that God used him to get them going, right? That's, that's key to the way Paul understands missions, starting new church. That's what that word means, missions, starting new church, creating new believers, starting new communities of faith. He firmly believes that it is simply the working of God through the people that he sends. And so he starts out by saying he's grateful for this and what God is doing through these people. And we've looked at that several times throughout these letters, how what, what the working out of, of the gospel is amongst this church, right? And so then he launches into the summary of what happens when you become a Christian or what happened to these Christians when they decided to follow Jesus. Um, and this is something he taught regularly. Like we see throughout his letters, we see this same kind of quick three or four sentence thing get thrown out really quickly. Um, Romans 8, 29 through 30, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So it's a you know, really quick like summary of what, what, what happens when you become a Christian. Probably the most famous one is, in Ephesians, is a letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. That, that section, right? 
Um, and we'll be referencing that as we break down what Paul is saying here. So this is one of those things that like, uh, if, if you've never studied it, you might be really confused. Like if you're like me, I grew up in a church where Jesus was taught and preached every single week. Like nobody withheld it from me. But I remember very distinctly the day when I was in middle school when it finally like dawned on me to ask the question, why did Jesus have to go to the cross anyways? Like, you know, what what does that do? How does Jesus dying save me? Like, I, I remember distinctly that day. And it wasn't until somebody kind of broke this down for me, not this verse specifically, but ones like it, that I was like, oh, okay. And I think we need to have that, oh, okay moment regularly. Like, we need to go back and revisit. This is what it means. This is what happened. This is what it does. That way we don't just become numb to it and it just become part of who we are, but rather it become the, the part of who we are, right? So if, if you've been a Christian for a while, let's really dig into this. I know this might seem like old hat to you, but like really try to try to make this fresh to look at it with fresh eyes as best you can um, and pray for that pray that God will open your eyes to this anew to make it new and powerful and as meaning as it was to you the first time it ever dawned on you right and if you're a new Christian or you're not a Christian at all uh, my prayer is that this does open your eyes that you can see okay this is what happens this is this is how salvation and Christianity works okay um, and so that being said let's get into this what happens when we become a Christian and it starts out, before you ever become a Christian, right? It starts out way before you're even born. God chose you first. God chooses us first. Um, he says in verse 13, God chose you as the first fruits. Um, and so what, what he's saying is, is that God is the one who does the choosing. He said, Paul said in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 verse 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Um, and so it's you got to think of it in terms of, of a gift, right? God chose all of us. Now, if, if you're in the, the Calvinist camp, you'll look at this differently than if you're in the Arminian camp. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with those two words, um, they're, those are kind of like the two guys who put forward these opposing opposing schools of thoughts on God's choice, right? And they're really two sides of the same coin. But, but Joseph Arminius and John Calvin... You know, those are the guys. John Calvin says that God predestined some people, and Joseph Arminius says God chose some people. <laughs> they, they really are saying the same thing. Um, nobody disagrees that God does the choosing, but it's it's John Calvin will say, but God didn't choose some people, and Joseph Arminius will say that God chose everybody, just some people rejected it. Regardless, if you become a Christian, they're both going to say, "See, God chose you," <laughs> right? So. You know, I, 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 I look at the, the Arminian side and I, I, that's kind of where I land. But people I love and respect and who are a lot smarter than me also choose the Calvinistic way of looking at this. So, you know, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. They really have no applica implications when it comes to your faith and salvation. There's some implications on and other things. But as far as like the really, really important stuff, uh, that debate doesn't really matter here. The point is that God chooses us. And everybody who's become a Christian, God has chosen to do so. It starts with God choosing us and offering us this gift. Like you got to think about it in those terms. And no matter where you are, Calvin or Arminian, you're, 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 you, you start there. You believe that this is a gift freely given from God to us. It's not something that we just happen upon. You know, there's no coincidence that you hear the gospel. There's no, you know, just dumb luck. Like if you have the gospel presented to you, that is divine. That is God putting that into your life. And it's not something we earn. Like we didn't earn 
the the gift of salvation. We didn't earn this this gifting of God's choice. It's something that God chooses to give to us. And we see that in Ephesians 2 again, you know, another one of those examples of Paul spelling it out. But it's a gift that we have to accept. You know, we see over and over that it's not forced upon us. This is one of those things that the Calvinist and our Arminian thing that they will disagree on, that some people, the Calvinists, particularly the hardcore ones, will say that you can't resist it, you can't refuse it. Arminius says you can. I tend to think you can. Um, we see a lot of examples in the Bible of Nicodemus uh, being one, that, that, that he believed Jesus, but he never truly followed Jesus. Um, or the rich young ruler, Jesus admired him, is what he says. Um, but he still couldn't do what he needed to do to follow Jesus. Or, or all the thousands of people that Jesus preached to and spelled it out for, and they rejected him. I mean, that's, that's literally God himself sharing the gospel and people rejecting it. So that's where I land on that. Uh, if you disagree, cool. We're still friends, still Christians. Um, but that's the important thing to know is that God chose, chooses us first, right? Salvation and all that begins with God choosing us, not us choosing him. Right? So that's that's the first thing. The second thing Paul teaches is that God chooses us for salvation. Like God chose us, but chose us for what? For salvation. Um, verse 13, he says, God chose you as the first fruits of his work of salvation. Um, little context here. When he says first fruits, um, th- this is specifically for the people he's writing to, not us, because we're 2,000 years later, uh, we're not the first fruits no more. Um, and there's a, several different layers. I mean, these Thessalonian Christians, they were some of the first Gentile believers. They were some of the first European believers. But, you know, being within the first few decades after Jesus, they're some of the first believers, period, right? So first fruits, it's them. That's not really applicable to us. But the principle here of being chose for salvation that is, because that's still what happens to this day. So if we're chosen for salvation, it's pretty important we can spell out what salvation is, right? Um, the word here is soteria. It sounds kind of like a Spanish drink or something, but it really, it just means rescue or, or, or safety, you know, being saved from some impending danger or doom, right? And so what are we saved from? Well, we're, we're saved from getting what we deserve on the day Christ returns, on judgment day. Um, you know, uh, you got to remember that, that, that God has standards for everything in your life as a parent, as a friend, as a spouse, as an employee, as a coworker, as a taxpayer, as a citizen, as a, uh, as a Christian, as a Sunday school teacher, as a whatever you do, God has standards for every aspect of your life. And if you fail to live up to those standards perfectly, well, you sin. And so when we look at it from that point of view, we realize, yeah, we're all sinners. Like, we all sin a lot, a lot, a lot. And so uh, so when we have to understand that when we sin against God, we're sinning against a perfect God who created a perfect law with perfect standards. And that makes it an infinitely heinous crime. The punishment is something that we'll never be capable of fully serving because we're imperfect. We broke perfection. That's what that means. And so Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. What you earn when you sin, when you fail to meet God's standards, is, is death. Um, Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, 46, after teaching a parable about God's people and who aren't God's people, and at the end of the story, he says those who aren't God's people, these will go away into eternal punishment right? Forever punishment, not a little punishment, not serve some time and then you get out. Like, no, this is eternal. 
because you broke a perfect law against a perfect God, and you being imperfect are incapable of paying the punishment for breaking a perfect law. I know it's kind of a lot of using the word perfect, but it's hard to convey just like the, the heinousness of breaking a perfect God's standards. There's no paying that back. It's a sum total game. But as Christians, we're saved from that. So woo, right? Like we don't have to worry about that no more. We're the only ones on Judgment Day who aren't going to get what we deserve. But we're not just saved from that. We're saved for something. It's important to remember that salvation, being saved, is not the finish line. That's the starting line, right? We're going to be saved for a long, long time, right? We're going to be God's people in God's place that he creates for us, in God's presence for all eternity. So there's something we're saved for. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for him that we beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us to do good things. You look at the the, the Garden of Eden account, we see that, that they were there to, to do good things, to do work. We are saved for good work. God has prepared good works for us. And it's not just like on the other side of Judgment Day too. Those works start now. The moment you have salvation, well, you're off to the races. It's time to get to work. And that's being God's hands and feet to the world around you, sharing the gospel with people, being used by God to, to advance the kingdom, to create new communities of faith, to, to see salvation reach new peoples. But it's also the spiritual disciplines, growing close with God, reading your Bible, praying, meditating, all those things that, that Jesus told his disciples to do, fasting, obeying all of his commands. All those are good works that we are called to do right now. So we are saved from eternal death to eternal life for good works. And because God chose us for salvation, the gospel is sent to call us to it. So that's kind of, that's a really important thing to understand here, right? So God chooses us beforehand. He chooses us for salvation, to save us from death, but to save us to eternal life and for good works. And because of this, he sends the gospel to us to call us to it. Uh, Paul says in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. I want you to think about the gospel a little bit differently. Typically, we think of it just information that we can accept or reject, right? But Paul, over and over, says that's not the way it works. The way it works is it's the means through which God works, right? Um, this morning, I, t I, I drank a cup of coffee. I drank, as a matter of fact, four cups of coffee, according to the measurements on the side of my coffee pot. Uh, and I remember the first time I drank coffee, and it was like, ugh, right? Like, it, I didn't drink it and go, like, mm, this is the best stuff ever. Like, no, it, it was bitter and acidic, and a lot of people had their first cup of coffee and said, all right, I'm done. I'm never doing that again. Um, but me, I'm like, yeah, I'm drinking, at, at points, I was drinking, like, multiple pots a day kind of deal. Um, I, I listened to an audio book uh, a while ago, and the author had done a study, and he was pretty definitive that... There's a direct correlation between the introduction of coffee in the West and the West's extremely rapid growth in economics and exploration, like all these things. Like you can see when coffee was introduced and when it became widespread to how far uh, the West progressed in a very short amount of time. Um, 
that's why coffee breaks are sometimes mandatory. Like there's there, – he's looked at even like management studies who like they studied their coworkers and when they – or their employees and when they gave them coffee, the, the production went up by a, 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 a percentage that was documentable. Like you know, they could measure it. Like coffee had an impact on the amount of people – on people getting things done, right? Uh, and so it's like – I drink coffee black and it's it's not the best drink. Some people, you know, they drink their coffee and they have tons of sugar and sweetener in it and it's not – it's it barely tastes the coffee, right? The point is that we don't drink coffee for coffee's sake. Like some people really do love the taste of coffee, but most of us, it's, it's a means to an end. And the end is the caffeine, right? The caffeine gives us that energy boost and we get things done because of that. And so we drink the coffee, this bitter acidic drink every morning, because we know it's going to help us get our day started and get things done. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the coffee or your pop or whatever you drink, but the working, God's working is the caffeine, right? The gospel is the delivery method by which God does his work. And so it's important to remember that, that, that that's what the gospel is, that it is something more than just information. It is a delivery method for God's working. And all of that together that we've just studied, it results in our sanctification and our faith, right? That is the result of the gospel being shared and God working amongst the people and them attaining salvation, right? Salvation's starting line, but what happens after that? We're good works. And those are done in sanctification and in faith. Um, and so let's let's break down this this word sanctification because it's really really important. Again, um, the word is it comes from a, a, a Greek word called hagiazo, or the process version, the verb version is hagiazmo, um, and it just means a, a purification, uh, and a purification to what? To holiness. And we know that holiness means set apart or separate. Um, and so it's it's essentially the process of becoming like Jesus. After salvation, you start the process of sanctification where you continually become more and more like the person of Jesus. Um, Paul said in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he, pre he knew, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, or John said in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. We continually conform to the person of Christ, and it's done through those good works. You know, it's done through being God's hands and feet, but also through the spiritual disciplines. And all of that is the Holy Spirit working in us and changing us. But it works through those things, not just because of those things. Like you can't just read your Bible and grow spiritually. Trust me, if you've ever done a reading plan where you just check the boxes to keep up with everybody else, you'll know just reading the Bible doesn't do anything. It, it takes engaging with it and the Holy Spirit working through what you read, right? The Holy Spirit has to be involved in all of those good works to do the work, right? But ultimately, this results in what happens on Judgment Day where we share in Jesus' glory. Um, Paul said in Philippians, he said, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the important part, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So on Judgment Day, when Jesus returns, that is when we will be made perfect. We will be made like Christ. The process of sanctification will become complete. All right? And so that is how our lives are lived, in a constant process. We are still imperfect, we are still flawed, but we continue to grow into the person of Christ through the good works and through the working of the Holy Spirit. And the other thing that is a result of salvation of the gospel is faith. 
And faith is not only just believing in Jesus, but it's trusting him as your Lord and as your Savior, right? He's our King as well as our Savior. We're saved. That's what salvation is. And Jesus is the one that does that through the cross and his resurrection. But he also has to be the King of our lives. He has to be the, the Lord of all that we do. He has to be. Or you, just, you don't have him as your Savior. You can't have one without the other. And that is the result of that, that trusting in him as our king is the result of God working through the gospel. So that is what happens when we become a Christian. I know there was a lot and there were a lot of verses there. I normally don't throw that many verses at you guys, but that most of them come from Paul himself. And since First and Second Thessalonians are the earliest letters we have of him, when we look at the other letters, it's, it's the same subject matter. He's just expanded a little further. So sorry for the, the bajillion verses I'm throwing at you, um, but they all kind of go to support that idea that God chooses us first. He chooses us for salvation, that he chooses us through the gospel. That's the means through which he works through us. Uh, and we live the rest of our lives doing good works as we are worked out through the process of sanctification in our faith. And that leads us to the end. So uh, to the end of, of today's section, uh, verses 15 through 17. And this is kind of like, this is what happened when you became a Christian. That's what Paul says at first. Here's how you hold fi- fast to that. Here's how you get through. Because he, he knows that this church is going to face troubles because they're Christ's church. The church always faced troubles. This church had faced persecution from day one. They have been attacked because of their belief. Um, but all the way to today, like people who claim the cause of Christ, who choose to follow him and make him the king of their life, they face troubles because of that. And on top of that, the world is a mess. The world's always a mess. Uh, and so you face difficulty every single day that cause you to question and doubt. And, and what Paul gives here in these three verses is, is how, do you, how do you live life through that? How do you hold fast to this Christianity, to this changeness? How do we all be, continue to become sanctified? How do we continue to hold to our salvation? Uh, he says in verse 15, he says, Hold on tight to the traditions which you were taught, whether through what we said or through our letter. In other words, what Paul says, this is how you hold tight. He says, if you, you're on a bus or a boat and, they, they, or, and you, you're like experiencing some shock, like the, the boat is, is, is bouncing up and down because of waves, or if you're on a, a bus and you know, it starts hitting potholes, you hold on to the safety rope, right? Well, what is the safety rope you hold on to? It's those foundational Christian teachings. Right? You can get caught up in all kinds of crazy, doctrinal, dogmatic nonsense. You can get into the fine-tooth comb detail stuff and, and really get caught up in differences between denominations and, and theologies and blah, blah, blah. But what Paul says, you really want to get through the hard times, you hold fast to the basics, the basic foundational Christian teachings. And those are really just down to three things. He says, number one, it's the basics of the gospel, Right? Jesus is who he said he is. He did what he said he did. And he's going to do what he said he's going to do. The basics of the gospel. That Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He is the son of the living God, a person of the Trinity. He lived a perfect, sinless life, was arrested, illegally tried, illegally executed, put in the tomb, three days later, conquered death, resurrected, preached the gospel for 40 days, ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us, sent the Holy Spirit, and eventually he's going to come back. That's the basics of the gospel. Hold to that. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. That's it. That's what Paul says. That's your foundation. Second thing he says is, 
focus on the central important things of the church. Don't focus on, you know, all these extra things. Don't focus on the music or the architecture or the carpet or the curtains or all these other nonsense. Focus on the basics of what a local church does. Baptism and communion and discipleship and sharing the gospel. Right? That is, those are the, the, the central actions of a worshiping church. They baptize people. They teach people to obey the commands of Christ. They offer communion as they remember what Christ did for them. They make disciples who make disciples. That's what a church says. Focus on that. Don't get focused on all the other nonsense. The third thing he says is the fundamentals of Christian behavior. You know, Paul over and over in almost every letter spells out lists of things that, 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 that the Christians should be doing, things they shouldn't be doing, the basics of Christian behavior. And he emphasizes over and over and over in almost every letter, agape love, loving people regardless of whether they deserve it or not. Agape, because that's the love that Christ shows us. Show your brothers and sisters in Christ that same kind of love. Show people on the street that same kind of love. Show agape love to the people around you, love that isn't based on whether or not they deserve it, or they earn it, or have the potential to earn it, but instead based on the fact that you are loved regardless of whether you deserve it, and therefore you love others that same way. That's that agape love, showing in the world Christ's love. And how do we do that? How do we do that? It really comes down to two things. There's two sides to this, really. It's not two things. It's two sides to the same coin. The first is that you trust that God is powerful, and that he will support you, that God is control, and he's going to support you as you go about holding tight to those things. And the second thing is, therefore, because God is powerful and will support you, stand firm and hold tight. Now, there's a temptation here that a lot of people fall into. They think they can relax because God is in control and they don't need to do anything, right? God's going to take care of it. I'm not going to put forth the effort. God's got all this. God does have all this. But God works through us and through our actions. There's, you can't read the Bible and not see that. If you do, you're, you're reading the Bible like this. Oh, I see that part. Oh, not that part. Oh, I see that part, right? Like you're, you're picking and choosing. God always, Jesus always, the apostles always spell out, you want to be my people? You want to follow me? It involves work. Not that the work earns you anything, but it involves work. The other temptation is just because we face hard times and because we struggle it doesn't mean that God's in, it means that God isn't in control. That's what that, that's what that temptation is, that we think because times are hard, God really isn't as powerful or isn't in control. But that's not true either. The Bible never, ever says that because you are one of God's people, things are going to be easy or even easier. As a matter of fact, it teaches things are going to be harder. You're going to suffer. Jesus said, carry your cross. That means you're willingly carrying the instrument of your own destruction, namely being a Christian around with you, and you're going to do it happily. That's what being a Christian is. And nowhere in any part of the Bible does it say you're going to be happy, healthy, and life's going to be easy. It says the opposite. And so Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 15.10 where he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not me, but the grace of God that is with me. He says, I, it's not me that did all the stuff that, that caused the church to grow, that, that planted all these churches, that, that blossomed into the, the, the movement in Europe that it would become and trickle down all the way to the West to this day. He says, it's not me that did that. 
It's God. But I worked harder than anybody to be used by that. That should be our attitude. God's going to be the one who uses what we do, but we are serving a great, big, powerful God who knows better, sees better. We have to work harder than anybody in serving him. You know, so when you face troubles, when you face struggles, hold tight. Hold tight to the basics, the fundamentals, but trust that God is going to get you through it, that God is going to use what you do in a lot bigger ways than it ever should be used, right? That's what Paul is teaching us today. This was a lot, uh, and I hope it helped you understand exactly what happens when you become a Christian and how to hold tight and hold fast during difficult times. If you have any questions, reach out to me. Happy to answer them. Uh, Otherwise, I'll see you next week.